Support for the podcast comes from Canva. Presenting to a group of your colleagues can be nerve-wracking, so why not ease some of that anxiety with Canva? Thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and that's it. You're done. It's a serious time saver. Whatever you do for work, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com, designed for work. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hey, everybody, it's Neil from The Vergecast. On this week's interview episode, I'm joined by Stuart Butterfield, the CEO of Slack. I'm guessing if you listen to The Vergecast, you know what Slack is, but it's the workplace communications tool that came out of nowhere a few years ago and is now dominant in enterprises of all sizes. At The Verge and Vox Media, we use Slack to do basically everything. Stuart and I talked about how Slack beat its early competitors, where it's going. We talked about some feature requests, of course. We talked about Slack's explosive growth during the pandemic. And importantly, we also talked about Slack's competition with Microsoft. Microsoft is incredibly focused on Slack with its Teams product. Slack is a startup. Microsoft is Microsoft. Stuart has a very different view of the tech giant competition than most of the CEOs I talked to. And his perspective on it was really interesting. I encourage you to listen to that. Also, one thing I want you to pay attention to, Stuart's been in the industry for a long time. He's been building software for a long time. He has a different perspective than a lot of the folks I talk to as somebody who makes the stuff and thinks about product design as a product person versus the business CEOs that I talk to quite often. So just a really interesting, insightful conversation. I really enjoyed it. Check it out. Stuart Butterfield, CEO of Slack. Stuart Butterfield, you're the CEO of Slack. Welcome to the Vergecast. Thank you for having me. We, I've been wanting to get you on the show forever. It seems like a very opportune time to talk to you in the midst of the pandemic midst of a bunch of people working from home. So I just want to start sort of late March. You had a long tweet storm just about how Slack's growth exploded as the virus started to hit. People started to stay home. The number you had here was that you went from 10 million users to 12.5 million users in, in basically just a couple days or a week. Is that pace still going? Is, is it still crazy for you guys? Is it slowed down? What's, what's it look like? Yeah, definitely not on a percentage basis because we would have taken over the world. Um, but uh, yeah, we were talking there about simultaneously active users. So uh, Slack is very intensively used uh, up to a couple hours a day for, for paid users. And that's one of the interesting ways to measure the impact is to think about how many billions of hours, it's just a couple of billions at this point, that people spend on Slack, which is a great responsibility. Hopefully they're doing mostly productive work uh, and hopefully that <laughs> is an investment that uh, that pays off. But um, yeah, this has been a particularly crazy time for us as it has for everyone, but I think, you know, for us, it, in addition to the 
holy smokes, we all have to work from home. What are we going to do? How are we going to manage this? There's been the the business results. Uh, I am yeah, a little limited in what I can say about the specifics just because we're in the quiet period leading up to our earnings next month. Right. So there's this big spike in demand for Slack. You see the numbers go up. Did you have to make any changes on the back end in terms of meeting all that demand? Were you able to scale? What What did that moment look like? look like for you? I mean, maybe this is overstating it, but Slack is like a critical part of our workday at The Verge. It's a core piece of our infrastructure. I know lots of other people feel that way as well. How did you make sure you could survive the onslaught? Yeah, there's um, a couple different angles. So the on the purely technical infrastructure side, we actually had made, um, fortunately, a number of investments over the last year and a half, but especially the last six months, which automated a lot of the scaling. So as demand increases, capacity increases largely automatically. So that was great. But we did have to scale a bunch of things. So one was um, we asked all of our salespeople to reach out to each of their customers and ask if there's any way we could help. Um, and that was in like in the first 24 hours. So that created a lot of communication back and forth. And, and uh, we also offered free 20-minute kind of one-on-one -on -one consults either on how to use Slack or remote work tips or any of that stuff. So we had volunteers across the company to try to keep up with the demand. But in addition to the demands on the technical infrastructure, it was kind of demands on our, our support infrastructure and the number of, uh, of customer success managers. But also everyone is just super busy. You know, there's our existing customers um, expanded their usage. The, at the individual user level, people expanded their usage. And there were brand new customers and brand new people evaluating Slack. So just kind of in every respect, it was a, a scramble. Good news was there's a lot of adrenaline in the first um, couple of weeks and also a sense of purpose because it felt important that we allow you and you know all the other newsrooms in the country to, to continue to operate and the scientific research on, on Slack and the healthcare providers and the disaster response people. But um, I think everyone likes to see their work have impact. And you know at that time, um, there's a real feeling like we are made for this. So I'm interested in um, tips for remote work. And, and you called it what Slack offers is organizational agility, right? Not necessarily a remote working solution, but the opportunity to go work remotely if you need it. One of the first things I said, I mean, like I'm an old IRC head. So one of the first things I said to our team was, hey, it's great to do all your life in chat. You actually need to pick up the phone a bunch because you are you can be more mean or more cutting in chat than you would ever be in person just by accident. Are those the kind of tips you were giving to large organizations or was it more practical? Like, here's how to name all your Slack channels. No, it's actually the whole thing. So you obviously had an enormous um, advantage having used IRC in the past, but for for a lot of people, it's a totally novel and unfamiliar way to communicate. So just the concept that there are channels and other people can see this, who can see it exactly? Like, I don't know if I want to have this conversation in front of my boss or random colleagues across the company. So it's everything from the sociology, the etiquette, or what linguists call the pragmatics of it to like literally how to operate the system and set policies. And it's it's very different because, you know, I I volunteered for one of these consults and it was um, a guy in New Zealand starting a novelty business. So you remember like, you know, like fake puke? Yeah. And like, yeah. So that stuff. Oh, like New Zealand Spencer Gifts? <laughs> yeah. No, like Chinese manufacturing. He was just starting oh, wow. this company up. And it's just, it's him and one other person right now. So that was, you know, not... Typical. And meanwhile, we have our customer success managers deployed to move a customer's 
14,000 person customer support team to working from home, which is obviously a, a huge transition. Are you just like tailoring those strategies for these different clients? Are you, cause there's so much of using Slack that's like telling people to not at here, everybody in a channel. And then there's so much of using Slack that's somehow mating your corporate process to a chat app and an interface in like a channel design. Are you in the weeds as people move to remote work and deploy software like Slack? Yeah. It, yeah, and and there's like there's some things that seem like they're very trivial but end up being important. And my favorite example is um, also because we used IRC, we were used to receiving notifications only when someone mentioned our name or sent us a message directly, like just just to us. And so that's how Slack works. And most people are coming from messaging systems where you get a notification for every message because obviously the volume is much lower. So if you're on WhatsApp or Instagram DMs or whatever, you get a notification every time anyone sends a message, which would be crazy in Slack. So it turns out that mentioning people's names is really important. And everyone understands the mechanics of it because Facebook has a billion five users or, or whatever it is. And um, if you at mention someone in Facebook, they get notifications. But there's not necessarily a feeling that you can trust your colleagues' discipline about remembering to mention you when something requires your attention at every organization. Whereas at Slack, we just kind of grew up, it's like the company, we kind of grew up that way. And that what that means is if I get back after a bunch of meetings or something and I see 100 unmet, unread channels in Slack, but only three of them have the red notification bubbles, I'll just check those three and then go back to what I was doing. The other 97, I can check at my leisure or when I have a question or when I want to catch up on something. So if you don't kind of implicitly trust that people mention your name anytime something requires your attention, then you see all 100 of those channels as things you had better check because maybe there's something important for you. And suddenly the whole thing seems overwhelming and unworkable. So the training on stuff that seems trivial and insignificant can end up being really important to the actual dynamic. But the basic thrust for everyone is create a channel for everything uh, that's going on across the company. Every conversation, every project, every initiative, every team, business unit, office location, like literally everything. And once you do that, everyone knows where to go to ask their question. Everyone knows where to go to give their update. Everyone knows where to go to get caught up on something. And that's really transformative. I think the bigger the, the company, the more significant it is. I have a lot of questions about how you think about managing Slack channels, but connected to this is the idea that user interfaces will drive people's behavior and then obviously be in a feedback loop with that behavior and you'll capture it. And well, during all of this, you rolled out like major redesigns of your apps. Did you think, oh, we should hit pause and not roll out these redesigns because everyone's coming into this interface and we're about to change it on them? Yeah. Unfortunately, there's just never a good time. And I am also a user of software. And I think over the last 25 years of making software. I've really, I, I think I've gotten good at training myself to look at Slack the same way I look at the Comcast XFi <laughs> management thing. I hope or, you look at Slack with a little more affection. Well, yeah, I mean, there's, there's some affection. But the point is, you know, everyone finds it easy to criticize other people's stuff. If it's like you needed to change your 401k, it's like, oh my God, these guys, they're a bunch of idiots or you know something with Verizon or your bank or um, applying for a visa. It's tough to do that to your own stuff, but um, I think I'm pretty good at it. I, can, I have many frustrations. If you work on the product team at Slack, you know all of my opinions. <laughs> um, at the same time, even if something is definitely better than the current design, it can be tough for people to switch just because they get so used to something. And it's not about whether this is a better design in some abstract sense. It's I have muscle memory to do it this way, and now you're asking me to do it that way. And 
that's disruptive to me because I don't really care about Slack or what the UI is like for other people or, or, or anything. But yeah, we can't stop changing it. So did you, did you ever have the moment where you were like, we actually need to hit pause in this or were you full speed ahead? We got to do this right now. Yeah, full speed ahead. I mean, there, there's a little bit of pausing because um, at the really high end, so you know, for, for large customers, we don't provide them support to their internal IT system and that's the way that they want it. So they often ask us to hold back on, on changes for their company until they have more time to plan for it and stuff like that. But for the general audience, no, because we had been ready for uh, a while at that point. And then Slack as a company, obviously, you make the software, you enable people to work remotely. You know, you have an office, people work there. Are you thinking differently now about how you might organize your company in terms of where people work? Oh, absolutely. So at no conclusions. And I just, you know, my style is I would, if I have to make a decision now, I would like to make a decision quickly. And clearly, if I don't have to make a decision now, I'll wait, because I like the optionality. And at this point, we just have no idea. And it's not a decision that's entirely up to us, uh, Slack, the company, because we exist in a in a marketplace. And you can imagine if every company uh, with whom we compete for talent decided 20 or 30 or 40% of our employees will work from home full time. And for everyone else, there's this um, flexibility. So maybe you come into the office a couple times a week, or maybe you work from home for a week and then come into the office every third week. Or uh, And we don't do that. Then first of all, they're just they have a bigger pool um, of talent to to choose from. And also Slack employees who over this period realized, damn, I want to actually live closer to the rest of my family back East or I, you know, whatever it is. I, I want to live somewhere where I can see a lake. Yeah. And those people would, would leave and go somewhere else. So we're kind of, there's a degree to which we got to stay in line with the market, but I'm also excited about it personally, like reimagining what that physical space is for, because we spend an extraordinary amount of money and it's to, you know, those offices exist principally to facilitate people sitting at desk using computers, whereas they could exist principally to allow for more effective collaboration, which means a bigger variety of spaces and you know more dedicated towards meetings, a smaller number of fixed desks, and the expectation that if you already know, if you already have like this giant list of work and you just got to plow through it, then stay home. You know, and when it's time to do the road mapping session and get together with a team and think about what you want to all do next, then come to the office. And then once you have your kind of work cut out for you, again, go back home. Yeah. I, I think about that a lot, particularly as it relates to Slack, because Slack obviously disintermediates you from your physical location in a very effective way. But it also means your work can come with you all of the time, uh, which is, I think, maybe the main complaint I hear about Slack, right? It's it's chasing me around. And so we are always telling people to turn off their notifications or get rid of it or just like walk away from it. Is that part of your training as you roll it out to big organizations to be responsible and how you use it? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And again, Slack, the company uses Slack, the product in a super specific way. That's and we evolved from eight, per, eight people to 2,100 or however big we are now using Slack the whole way. So we, we view it as kind of as synchronous as you want it to be. So it can be completely asynchronous. I'll get back to this in 36 hours from now, or it can be immediate back and forth. And I think there's a lot of never like explicit rules that we taught people, but just habits that developed in the culture. Things like adding the eyeball emoji to a post by someone just means like, I'm, I'll check this out. It's kind of like a someone, I don't remember who now, called um, faves on Twitter, the humane read receipt. <laughs> it just means like, I, I took explicit action to let you know that I, I looked at your response. 
So if you do that, then there's usually less pressure to respond. But this is something that happens over and over and over again. And I remember reading a, a journal story in 2000 or 2001 that was like, blackberries, ugh, they're ruining our lives. And it was illustrated with a, a woman pushing a shopping cart in a supermarket with like two kids tugging on her arm and her other hand is her phone and she's like answering messages. And the complaint was like, we can't get away from this stuff. It follows us on vacation. It's the evening. It's the first thing when you wake up. I think anytime there's a technological shift, it takes a while for really like almost low-level social physics, I don't even want to say sociology, to figure out the right equilibrium point. Because if the culture is, I'll get back to you when I can, um, or when it makes sense, then suddenly there's, there isn't that expectation and people don't feel like obliged to respond. But let me just give you a quick illustration of how complicated it truly is. Yeah. So we decided, because of this problem, where I, w- I want to send you something. It's 11 p.m. I'm worried I'm going to forget if I don't, because it just occurred to me again to ask you this question. So I can send it to you at 11 p.m., but I'm the boss, you know, and you'll have the same experience. And people will just assume, oh, he sent it to me now. I, like, I got I to gotta get back to him. So we, we actually created a do not disturb mode more for the sender than the recipient. So the sender could feel comfortable sending it and not having to remember this thing because they knew that the recipient had the control to turn the notifications off. But we also know that people generally don't change the defaults. So if we didn't make it default on, then most people wouldn't use do not disturb. But we also knew that people had keyed workflows off of notifications, like things like if you're on call uh, or on rotation for monitoring a network or something like that. And also, we don't know exactly how that company works, so we want the boss to be able to override whatever the preferences are. But also, probably we should give individual users the power to override whatever the boss said. So the way we ended up doing it was we set everyone in Slack to, I think it was 8 p.m. to 8 a.m. Notifications would be off in your local time zone. And we didn't start it yet. And then we told all the bosses, here's the default. You can change the default for your team. And then we we turned it on for everyone. And it's worked. but. It's, it's a it's very subtle problem, and, and, and that's just about notifications. And in addition to that, I think there could be a bunch of training. I, I will acknowledge freely, because I'm a, almost an eager critic of Slack, it would be much easier to treat it more asynchronously if it was easier to catch up, because mm-hmm. most people do what I, most heavy users do what I do, which is like mark tons of channels unread, or maybe you use the saved items feature, or you use reminders. However it is, you kind of develop your own way of coping with all the stuff you want to follow up on. And we don't make that very easy. We could make that trivially easy. And if it was you know, as easy as it is an email, where you can definitely miss stuff and you can fall behind and you get overwhelmed, but you, know, you look at your email inbox and it's essentially a to-do list and you can easily delete and archive things until, yeah. yeah. So you can't, you can't miss it, really. You know, it's funny about this conversation is I keep looking at Slack. <laughs> While it's going on? Not because I'm distracted, but because you're talking about the features and I'm opening Slack and then Slack is itself full of my team distracting me. I don't usually have this problem with other CEOs. I don't like start playing my Sonos speaker when I talk to <laughs> Patrick Spence. Um, so you brought up this idea of asynchronous communication and email. When Slack was beginning, when that first wave of explosive growth took off, I think we wrote this headline, everyone else wrote this headline, Slack is gonna kill email. Mm-hmm. That has not happened as near as I can tell. Is that still the goal? Was that a framing that you just took because it was powerful? Did that did something change in that relationship? No, I'm actually, while we're talking, I'm trying to do a complex qualified Twitter search 
Um, here we go. August 14th, 2013. This is a tweet from Slack. People say we want to kill email. If we wanted email dead, it'd be cold and in the ground already. <laughs> Keep it in the round. Do our dirty work. Uh, so we never said that we would we would eliminate email. I think we do. I mean, we're the extreme. We don't use email for internal communication at all, ever. Like no one would ever email anyone else. And I think there's tens of thousands of smaller companies that have evolved that way in their use of Slack over the years. But that's not a change that's going to happen in under five years and probably more like a decade for a lot of organizations. You know, if, if it's the people have been there 20 years and have developed workflows around email, you can't just stop. And there's nothing intrinsically wrong with email. I think the virtues of it, you know, it's an open standard, universal namespace. Anyone can run an SMTP server. So it's, you know, lowest common denominator in a really positive way. And I think you want those advantages, but you, none of those are advantages when it's just internal communication where you can select a specific platform and channel-based messaging platforms like Slack, I think genuinely make life a lot easier because you join the, the team. You know, People started at Slack yesterday, every Monday, and there's, I don't even know, 15 million messages in the archive that are available for them to search. They can, you know, for their team that they work with most closely, they can scroll back over the last couple of weeks of conversations and see not only the facts and projects that people are working on, but also how people relate to one another, what the sense of humor is, and all of that stuff. And I think the net of that is you get up to speed two times faster or three times faster. I mean, I'm just making up the, the number, but you get up to speed so much faster. And the same thing is yeah. true for changing teams inside, getting up to speed on something. So because the advantages are so significant, I think that shift is inevitable. And of course, you know, bringing it back to the current situation, I think a lot of organizations just got shoved down that timeline of inevitability by 6, 12, 18 months, or in some cases, probably a couple of years. Yeah. I mean, that's really what I'm asking. That acceleration effect of how we're going to work, how we're going to communicate. Yep. Definitely going faster. But I look at our group. I we use Again, we use Slack for everything. We use other kinds of tools for other kinds of project management. And yet we still have a sense, and I, I, I get it, when we want to formally communicate something, it's still an email. Like there's there's some sort of letter writing formality to email. Or in the, the case of your 11 p.m. thought, I won't Slack it because I know that everyone has their notifications on because it's a newsroom and they're maniacs. I will literally email it and at the top of the email say, this can wait, right? Because it's like fully asynchronous and it has that formality to it. Are those things you want to bite for Slack, that way of communicating priority or communicating formality? We implemented APIs for scheduled sending of messages, and I think we're going to end up putting that into the product at some point. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Gmail, or sorry, G Suite has now, I don't know that they've normalized it in the sense that most people use it, but at least there's a billion plus user bit of software that has that built in now. So I think from that perspective, uh, much more likely to give more and more tools that allow you to keep track of the things you want to get back to, more control over notifications, scheduled sending, all of that kind of stuff. As for like stealing the last couple, you know, internal roles for email inside of a company, like the announcement of a acquisition or divestiture or executive change or something like that, that's okay. <laughs> they can still use they can still use email for that. As long as, you know, like you use the word where a couple times when talking about Slack. Yeah. And it, I think that idea of like knowing where to go to ask the question, knowing where to go to give the update, knowing where to go to um, get caught up in something is the is the heart of it. 
And, you know, that can be accountants closing the books for the quarter or doing an audit because there's just like all this flyback back and forth about how come this was deferred revenue and why isn't this thing show up as an expense now? And, you know, or it can be a group of marketers negotiating the Q3 marketing budget and like in real time making their case for more online ads versus print or something. It can be um, recruiters organizing a job fair. It can be network engineers diagnosing a production incident. It's really like anything, whatever the work it is that that group does, that's what happens in Slack. And all of that would be terribly served by email. So it's funny, you called me out on saying where. I will call you out on this very interesting dichotomy, which is we have only talked about work. Slack for many people is also a social space. It is a personal space. Particularly now, Slack groups are forming for all kinds of things that have nothing to do with work or careers or professionalism. Are you thinking the product needs to shift to serve your business customers and the people who are using it to hang out with their friends? No, is the short answer. Um, and not because I don't care about it, but because it's very, very hard to do both of those well. And I think that most of the kind of accommodations you would make for one side or the other actually make it worse. So. You know, while you were asking that question, I was thinking about my own personal use of Slack, and that's down to just my family Slack, which is fiance, work assistants, that's about it. That's not for like intimate, I don't mean like cyber sex and, you know, just like, just, it's not for, it's for more like shopping lists and vacation ideas or maintenance that needs to happen on the house or something like that. Whereas all the little back and forth during the day are in, in iMessage. So it's not that we'd want to make it hard for, for people to use it for personal reasons. The personal uses of Slack that seem most, mm, I don't know, that, that most fit the shape of Slack are those where it's still a group of people who are aligned around the accomplishment of some goal or set of goals. And that could be planning a new wedding, a home renovation project, kind of just operating their family, you know, like between kids' lessons and school and homework and travel and, you know, all that stuff, as opposed to people who just have a natural infinity. Like at the a Star Wars fan club would Slack would be a terrible tool. You know, it's, it's something like Reddit would be much better. And thankfully those things exist. But let me push you. I mean, Discord exists. It is mostly communities around games. I guess games are a kind of project. Kind of yeah. in, in one way. But I mean when when Slack goes down, we all go to Discord. It's because it it's a very different product, a different audience. But at the core of it, it's channel-based messaging. So we can actually operate inside of Discord. Do you think of Discord as a direct competitor or is that just more consumer and not in your zone? Uh, no. So I think you're right that functionally experienced users could temporarily substitute Discord for Slack. Um, it depends. If you have any real use of the platform, then I think that you wouldn't be able to carry that over. And there's a couple of other things. Oh yeah. Like the entire Verge doesn't go. It's the core sort of newsroom operation that needs to, and it is still pure chaos, don't get me wrong, but we're able to do it. People have a hard time getting over associations and there's certain things like the first time someone asked me about, you know, asked like a Slack employee asked me about Discord internally, like shouldn't we be worried we see open source projects moving over there and stuff. I struggled to find the right analogy, but if Apple launched a vodka brand, Apple just doesn't do anything for vodka like that. I would <laughs> like maybe maybe I would be more inclined to buy that vodka than something else. But it doesn't translate. Yeah, it's cachet in that way because people just form associations. Slack is already a, a pretty messed up name for a workplace productivity tool. Discord is <laughs> Discord is significantly worse on, in that respect. But if you go to the website and it's all the stuff about gaming and, and live chat and stuff like that, and you're coming f as the VP of end user productivity inside of 40,000 person financial services organization, 
and you have, it has to be FINRA compliant. And for other regulatory reasons, it needs to be ISO 27001 and 27018 and blah, 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 blah. Obviously, you're not getting that at, at Discord. And I think it would be foolish for them to add all that stuff because it's super complex. Um, and in the same way, for us to add a really great, capable set of purely social tools would also be very complex. Like good software is just very, very hard to make. And so, you know, there's a lot of people who think it's just X or X is some app that I already know and kind of dismiss the, the effort that goes into it. I think people who think they could make Slack in a weekend or something like that, well, first of all, obviously just completely impossible. I don't, I think a hundred percent of them would fail even to get 10% of the way through authentication in Slack, like how you sign in, because you have to support different SSO providers and the SAML protocol and two-factor auth. and block. Like it's just, um, that's how I look at all other software. Like I don't want to do what Salesforce does. I don't want to do what ServiceNow does. I don't want to do what Atlassian does. If we can get away with just doing um, what Slack does and ideally being a multiplier on the value of all those other tools, then that's a great position for us. And it's a great you know position for customers as well. I feel like you just fired shots at half of Hacker News. I'm excited for it. <laughs> it's going to be spicy. So you brought up Atlassian. They obviously operated HipChat. It's gone. You brought up other companies. At one point, I think Basecamp had a had Campfire. Campfire is gone. Why do you think Slack won and beat out all of those competitors at that scale? Because they had built it. They were there. But Slack sort of swept them all. And now, you know, there's a handful of big competitors that I want to talk about, but Slack has eaten that entire market. Is that a network effect thing? Is that a user interface familiarity thing? How did that happen? So I think it's hard to pull these apart. And I think in situations like this, there's always an element of luck or timing or one particularly influential person decided to, to use it. And people really rely on social proof. So if you, you hadn't heard of Slack at all, and then suddenly out of the blue, someone told you everyone's switching from product X to Slack. And then suddenly you notice everyone saying that, you'd think everyone must know something that I don't know. So, you know, there's a gravitational force or some increasing return dynamic once it starts. But the reason that I think it um, took off relative to uh, HipChat and Campfire and other tools at that time is really a very basic feature. And that's, we kept what we call a cursor position or like what the most recent message you've read up to in every single channel. And we immediately sync that across devices. So you could walk across the room, scrolling on your phone, sit down at your desktop, and you're in exactly the same position. And people forget that until Slack came along, the other apps didn't do that. So you always had for every single channel to go find the point that you had read to last, which is incredibly cognitively taxing and incredibly time consuming. So it just turns out that that one feature is, is really was really critical. So I don't mean it was all about that. It was also nicer looking UI, deeper integrations, whatever. And I'm sure there's many other features besides that one, but I, I really feel like that one was such a profound difference in the experience of using the product that you would tolerate a lot of things you didn't like just to get that. The reason I asked that question is you're you're the winner of that battle at that scale. You've got a lot of big clients. You have a huge competitor in Microsoft, which is, I mean, it's funny to see Microsoft go all out on Teams to try to take on Slack, which is a much smaller company. Do you think that they can steal some of your moves that you used in that early period to win? Is that a competition you see as directly as they appear to? Uh, it's complicated. So... I don't think the same moves are available to them because I've never heard anyone say we're going to use Teams instead of Slack because we think it's a superior product. I mean, I don't mean that that's never happened, but I've just I've never heard it. <laughs> but they're also they end up quite different, and um, there's definitely a sense in which 
well, this is how it feels on the inside of Slack. Microsoft is perhaps unhealthily preoccupied with killing us. And Teams is the vehicle to do that, but Teams is much more of a direct competitor to, to Zoom. I mean, it's if you watch their you know product announcements or read their press releases, if you look at the features listed, if you think about the 100 million people who are being migrated from Skype for Business to Teams, it's voice and video calling. And Slack has some very limited voice and video capabilities built into it, but that's definitely not why anyone chooses to use Slack. So in that sense, uh, I think it's not, well, they're not directly competing at all. The advantage that they have is lots of enterprise customers already have Office 365. Teams is just there for free. So rather than we did an evaluation and we tried both Teams and Slack and fully examined all of the possibilities for how we might be better collaborators in this digital age, it's just we have Teams, uh, don't turn it off because it's already turned on for us <laughs> but kind of by default. At the same time, Teams has been out for three plus years and almost our entire enterprise business has grown up in the face of Teams. Like our revenue has doubled and doubled. And I think at some point people, the narrative will, will shift. But if it's quarter after quarter, us delivering results that show growth in enterprise and just continued growth across the board, then the idea that uh, Microsoft could just crush Slack will, will go away. Because if they could have, they definitely would have. If you think about this press release they put out in July of last year that had a, a chart of their daily active users and Slack's daily active users with the Slack logo uh, or the Slack name on, on their press release. No software company has ever done that. Yeah. Like maybe at the height, Oracle did, would do something like that. And Oracle definitely puts their competitors' names and charts in their, in their ads kind of notoriously. But literally no one else would ever do that. Microsoft has never done that before. Um, and that's at a time when we had one two hundredth the revenue. So that's it's kind of speaks to the the commitment they have there. And it is uniquely Slack. So if you Google Spataro Slack, so Jared Spataro is a corporate vice president responsible for other things, uh, Slack, you'll see a bunch of shit talking about um, how Slack isn't very good. <laughs> if you, but if you put in Spataro and Okta, you know, another company with whom Microsoft competes with a free bundled product, no mention. If you put in Spataro Google, no mention. If you put in Spataro Amazon, no mention. So it is, it is really specific to Slack, and there's a lot of background. But the point is, I think Microsoft benefits from the narrative that Teams is very competitive with Slack, even though the reality is it's principally a voice and video calling service. And the reason for that, I think, is if you imagine two years from now, imagine Zoom just cleans up, like 98% share. Cisco says, forget it, we're out. You know, We can't compete with this. It doesn't really matter to Microsoft's core business, whereas in the a different universe where Slack is incredibly successful over the next two years and 98% of, of knowledge workers um, use Slack, it does matter to Microsoft because the relative importance of email is hugely diminished. And in a world where um, you know Windows doesn't really make a difference, it doesn't give them any leverage to, to enterprise buyers, what is what gives them the leverage? It's people are used to Outlook and we already set up Exchange and there's a billion other things that are connected to it and it's really complicated to shift. But it's really about email. And, and if email becomes less important, um, then that whole $35, $40 billion a year collaboration and productivity business unit is, is threatened. Uh, well, let me just play that out again. You're saying that like the, the identity verification and you know your Exchange server, Active Directory, all that stuff, Slack's growth and success actually ultimately represents a threat to that and then the bundled software products with it? Yeah, I don't mean that you would use Slack instead of those things, because obviously they do totally different stuff. I just mean the leverage that that kind of core set of Office capabilities 
um, gives people. Right. Cause to set up, to set up email at your company, you kind of get all that other stuff for free. Yeah. And, and there's absolutely, if you're serious about, um, like making slide presentations, then PowerPoint and windows is way better than most other things. And I just asterisks there. I haven't tried all the new cool <laughs> courses because I know there's a bunch of them coming out and they, they have, um, pretty interesting looking features. And, you know, we're a customer of Office 365 at Slack because there's lots of finance people in the world who are like, I can't do this in anything but Excel. Like it's just it's just flat impossible. Um, but you wouldn't buy, you know, $30 million worth of Office 365 for every single person in your company in a site license um, unless you thought that email, Outlook, Exchange, and that kind of central calendar, Active Directory, all the kind of attendant stuff was was especially important. And again, if email declines in relative importance, maybe there's a lot of customers who say, okay, well, we'll use G Suite for the for the main stuff and we'll just buy some licenses for Excel for the people who need it, or we'll buy some licenses for PowerPoint. And that's obviously just a completely different business for Microsoft. So it's interesting about that is obviously Microsoft sells 365. That's a big revenue line for them. It is a single integrated office suite. You just sort of buy it. It shows up. You get all the tools. Then there's sort of the way our company works. Lots of startups work. We use Slack. We use Zoom. We use G Suite. We sort of cobbled together an office suite for multiple vendors. In this moment, Slack offers some video call functionality, but it doesn't offer group video calls. It offers some audio calling functionality. Do you think that you need to grow that and build that and become a competitor to Zoom? Do you think you need to partner with Zoom? Like, how do you think about forming the Colossus against the Microsoft Colossus? Yeah. So here's one thing I think people don't really realize or, or haven't fully internalized yet. I'm going to ask you to imagine a bunch of graphs and not the specifics don't matter, but just like the slope of these graphs. So number of minutes that knowledge workers spend using software per day and like from 1970 till now number of different software tools or services used by an average knowledge worker from 1970 till now, number of software companies that exist, number of software companies with more than $10 million in revenue, number of software companies with more than $100 million in revenue, the average number of software services in use by a large enterprise. Every single one of those is more or less on the same trajectory. And it's not like it just stops this year. Those are multi-decade trends that will continue. The average large enterprise now has a thousand different cloud services in use. And even us, we're only, like I said, 2,100 people. We buy from 450 different vendors. And that's not like different products, it's different vendors. I don't even know if I could name <laughs> 450 different software companies, but apparently that's how many just Slack buys from. And people forget all the stuff, like you choose any even simple seeming business process, um, and there'll be 10 or 15 tools behind it because you want to make a job offer to someone, you reflect that in Workday, and then you create an offer letter in your collaboration tool after scheduling the meetings with your recruiting scheduler specialty calendar software, and you send out the DocuSign and store the copy in box and use ServiceNow to provision them with, with um, tools and, and all that stuff. So people are going to use more software. Our position has always been for whatever software our customers already use or whichever they choose to use in the future, we'd like to make their experience of those tools better because they use Slack. So just to put that a different way, if you use Dropbox, we want to make Dropbox better for you because you use Slack. But same thing is true if you use Box or G Drive or SharePoint, OneDrive, doesn't matter to us. We'd like to make your experience of those tools better because that's the 
kind of space that we can imagine makes the most sense for us. It's, it's horizontal. I mean, if you think about different product categories as, as verticals, the traditional enterprise software business model has been to choose a vertical, make a product, get some customers, and then choose an adjacency and then sell the new product to the old customers and just keep on doing that over and over again. And I don't think that's the way the stock is going to grow in the future. To the extent that there's a second act, it's a, it's another horizontal, um, another thing that, that extends across those services. Because the one kind of negative consequence of the additional minutes spent dollars spent, the number of tools in use, is that the value of interoperability becomes greater. The kind of the siloing and kind of fragmentation of knowledge into these different systems, while it's still definitely a huge net plus to use them, is a real challenge for organizations. And if you have this central medium, if you have this lightweight fabric for systems integration, it's disproportionately valuable. And I think that's it. You know, so like there isn't people always say sweet versus best of breed. And there can be bundled or unbundled you know, kind of products at the margin. But I uh, I don't know this. I know that Microsoft's total revenue from software, like in the industry parlance, is around 6 or 7% of all software revenue. And they're the biggest, right? So behind them is going to be SAP and Oracle. And I don't know what percentage they have, 4% and 3% or something. That means that, you know, 90 plus percent of all revenue from software is from companies other than Microsoft, Oracle, and SAP. There's just this huge, huge long tail. Um, and that's unidirectional. Those just be more companies, more dollars spent per employee per year by, by companies, more minutes spent in software. And that's just an inevitability. So you don't, I mean, just to ask very directly, you're not like Google is like, oh my God, we blew it with Google Meet. We got to like try harder to compete with Zoom. That's a thing that we see happening right now. You don't feel that pressure to extend the capability of Slack in the video in that way. No, because I don't like ninety percent of the time. It, this is a, this is a challenge for us to be clear. But ninety percent of the time, we're selling into a new category. So that can be tough because if it's a zero-based budgeting approach, then no one has budget for a new thing that didn't they didn't buy last year. Um, and you have to explain what the new thing is and why it's valuable. On the other hand, you don't have to compete directly with anyone. Whereas if we came in and we said, we're Slack and we're also all the stuff that Zoom does, and you already have Zoom or Teams or Cisco or Meet or whatever, um, now we have to convince you to change. I don't think we get any additional revenue from that customer if they're, you know, if they're using Slack and the calling service. I don't think it's especially necessarily more attractive. In fact, uh, a version of Slack that integrates very deeply with Zoom or Meet or Teams Cisco, that's attractive. We're almost never going to have the the best version in every dimension um, of that hypothetical calling service. So yeah, I don't think it gets us any more customers. I don't think it gets us any more revenue. And I don't think it really um, is better for customers when compared to the alternative of deep integrations with their existing service. Support for this podcast comes from Canva. They say Rome wasn't built in a day, but you know what you can get built in a day? Your creative deck. You can generate creative decks to use for all your important presentations with Canva. Thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. You want a sales presentation for a tech company? Done. Create an employee onboarding plan? No problem. Just type it in and watch Canva work its magic. 
you'll have generated options in seconds. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and you're done. It's a serious time saver at work. So whatever you do at your job, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You can generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. It's AI for every department. It's easy to learn. It's even easier to use. And because it's built in Canva presentations, you can stay focused on the task at hand with no app switching. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. I talk to other CEOs of, of smaller or mid-sized companies and there's always just sort of the looming threat of the giant that we're all going to end up working for three companies at the end of when this is all said and over, like the consolidation is happening too much. The pace of new startup formation is too slow, right? There's just all this M&A activity and mergers and big tech is getting bigger. It seems like you're not feeling that pressure the same way. Just throughout this conversation, it doesn't seem like that is on your mind as a thing you have to fight back against. No. I mean, it always seems like that in the moment. It would have been incomprehensible to anyone to suggest that that 1977 Albuquerque hippie version of Microsoft, like I'm sure you've seen that photo where there's 12 of them, and that they would become more valuable than what at the time was the most valuable and powerful company in the world, IBM. Like it just it would not make any sense to you that that was possible. And... Um, you know, looking forward, if you all you knew was, hey, it's the year 2000, um, Microsoft owns Hotmail, um, has a big online presence with MSN, uh, has 90% market share for operating systems, 90% market share for web browsers, um, basically complete control over the world's population, how they get online. And now they're going to compete with search in search with this 40-person company from Mountain View. You would have been like, of course, Microsoft's going to win. They have... You know, a, thousand times of resources. They have all of these smart people. I mean, they literally have the choke point of like how you how you get there. They got in trouble for using that choke point. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I know. I know. Um, and nevertheless, there are people inside Microsoft who believe that this is only because of the the Justice Department actions. Um, but they, they sure lost there. And same thing, you know, Google in 2007 saying, damn, Facebook really is getting popular. Good thing we have the hundreds of millions of commenters on YouTube and the hundreds of millions of users of Gmail and the hundreds of millions of people doing web search, because we will, for the first time in the history of the company, promote something on the homepage. We will force every YouTube account to use Google+. We will promote it inside of Gmail. And they still got their bots kicked. And to me, the lesson of that is, and it, I, by the way, there's a million other examples, but the lesson of that is the small focused startup that has real traction with customers, I think sometimes has an advantage versus the large incumbent that has multiple lines of business, partly for innovators dilemma reasons, um, partly because bigger organizations are, are slow, and partly just because, and this might be included in the other ones, there's people at Microsoft who are better off in their career or the prestige of their role or their comp or, or something if Teams doesn't win. In other words, customers just buy Office 365. So it's zero sum internally for recognition and 
acknowledgement with Outlook and with Office 365 groups and with Yammer and with <laughs> SharePoint and with everything else. Yammer exists. It's uh, I forgot. And look, Facebook's 17 years old, 16 years old, whatever it is now, um, and fifth biggest company in the world. And there's lots of companies in that category that are that are relatively new that are doing super well. I mean, we're we're doing super well and we're relatively new. Zoom, same thing. So yeah, the 10 years from now, it'll be obvious, or 20 years from now, it'll be obvious why those companies wouldn't be dominant forever and a new thing would come to take their place. But looking into the future, it's very difficult to figure that stuff out. Do you think, again, I, I just think you, you, we will probably have the most interesting answer to this kind of question, because I hear the other answer a lot. Do you think Microsoft's competing fairly right now against Slack? I mean, they are bundling the product. They are taking lots of shots at you. They are, right? Like, that's a lot to be up against when you still have to charge licenses per seat. So I kind of got in trouble for this before, but I actually like the the phrase or the sorry, the term unsportsmanlike. Because I don't I don't know whether it's illegal. That's a question for somebody else. I do know that it's not principally concerned with selling the product on the merits of the product and the benefit it has for customers, but selling against something. And that seems unsportsmanlike. I don't know about unfair in some absolute sense, like morally, you know, judicially. But I also think that it's a tough thing to have work in the end, because here's another way that these things play out. Microsoft deploys Teams to company X. They get really used to it, and they find, wow, channel-based messaging is way better way to get work done. Um, they build some integrations, and they start to uh, get more and more of the company on it, and soon the whole company is on it. And then they think, damn, it sucks that we can only have 5,000 people per instance, and it sucks we can only have 200 channels per instance, and there's no way to federate them together. Um, we should consider moving to Slack, which allows allows organizations to scale to that level. Or we're kind of stymied by the platform capabilities and we need much richer set of integrations, we should move to Slack. So you can just get people used to the category and then suddenly come and uh, it puts those customers in play down the, down the line. So I think at some point you have to compete on the basis of it's a win for you as a customer uh, to use this product. Now that's the way I look at us purchasing software. As a general rule, there are exceptions. All software we buy is a good deal, almost definitionally, because it should be replacing some part of someone's job that could be replaced. Like it's, it's only you can only automate the automatable parts of people's jobs, and those are usually not the parts that are especially demanding of people's intelligence and creativity. So, you know, the purchasing software frees them up to do something that's that's a, a higher use of them, and you have to sell software ultimately on that basis, or you don't win. Yeah. So a while ago, you were talking about making it easier to use Slack. You were talking about having AI help you navigate the interface. That is intention with people are going to get used to our competitor's product and they're come to, right? If the interfaces diverge too much, you've got some problems there. Are you still thinking about sort of radical changes to how the interface is navigated to how AI might help you use it? Um, yes. So kind of across the board, and, and I think you can sequence things in such a way that it's less disruptive to people. I think Teams and Slack are going to be quite disjoint, so if you're talking about switching, but Slack in 2014 looks pretty different than Slack in 2020. When you think about how it continues to change in the future, I think there's opportunities for more AI, ML stuff, like our little-known people search feature. So you type in a search query into Slack. You could be looking for a message or a document, like a specific one, or you could just be looking for information about this topic. And if it's the latter, we suggest people who appear to be experts on that topic. And it's actually, you try it out, with, um, like think of someone who's a sports fan of a particular team 
inside of your company um, and put the name of that team in and then see if they show up in people search. There's live demo with with high potential to fail because it's the first time I ever thought of that example. It's not going great. No. (laughs) What was the team you put in? I put in Green Bay Packers and I was assuming... Well, maybe I can't find myself. Let me try. Oh, actually, I don't know if you can find yourself. That's interesting. No, nah, it didn't work either. I tried Chicago Bulls because I just watched the last dance and no one came up. All right. Well. I tried. I tried. I did my best. Yeah. Uh, if you put in revenue recognition for what it's worth inside of the Slack instance, you find Jonathan Gann, the uh, director of uh, revenue recognition. So, you know, at least that that demo is reliable. Or maybe I just don't have it yet. Maybe, maybe Vox Media Slack instance is behind the curve. Could be. Um, but then I talked about the ability to kind of track and manage all the stuff you want to get back to in the stock. I think that's that's mm-hmm. a serious pain point. And just making people aware that there is a history stack that you can go back and forth through, that is often a huge relief. Um, teaching people some of the basics. But looking further afield, well, I don't think we would ever build a calling service that has the same guts or uh, purpose as, um, as Zoom. I think there's opportunities for asynchronous video or audio communication. I mean, you see the obvious desire for this feature based on people's use of WhatsApp and to a lesser extent iMessage, the tap to record, release to send kind of send you a quick message. And there was this when Facebook added stories right after Instagram, there's this joke about how all software would add stories. But I could actually see a story like UI in a channel for a given team being pretty valuable. Because a lot of the messages in these like the, at the low level, a group of people working together on something are I'm going to be gone for lunch um, for the next 90 minutes because I got to pick my kid up on the way back or something like that. But also just kind of a a little update on how it's going, uh, how progress is on this project. And those could be effectively both delivered, kind of created and um, consumed in a way that might be preferable to, to text. And then the last thing I think is, whereas we want to give individuals better controls to track and manage all the stuff that's going on in Slack, collaborative means to organize the kind of huge rush of information to kind of pull things out and curate them, I think would be a huge advantage. And for every single thing that we can imagine doing ourselves, we would always um, try to make it available at the absolute stub level for any competitive product that people would want to plug in. Um, because if people can do that, it only accrues to our benefit. You know, the Slack with Slack branded feature X is probably less valuable than Slack with competitor branded feature X in the same slot because now you're using Slack and you have an integration set up. So, you know, it's like, it's, it's a little, it's even stickier. That's really interesting because it, right. That's the idea that Slack contains this corpus of knowledge about your company and you can service that in different ways. And then you can extend that into different software. Again, I, I just come back to the notion that people use Slack both for work and you're very focused on work. And we've mostly talked about work. But that is something you could apply to people's personal lives as they use it as consumers in other places. Does that cross your mind? Like if you're if you're gonna plan a wedding in Slack, could Slack just like learn more about your wedding and suggest wedding vendors to you? Like, is that just too far afield? Yeah, it's a totally different business. Like the the selling ads and stuff like that. I always use this story internally because I liked it, but one of Aesop's fables is the dog that has a bone in its mouth and it's walking along and it comes to a pond and it sees another dog with a bone in its mouth, which in truth is actually its own reflection. It opens its mouth to grab the other bone and as a result drops its own (laughs) bone into the water. So you cannot imagine like, I remember uh, a woman I worked with in God, 1998 or something like that, had this incredible shoe collection Excel sheet. And there's 
lots of people who put their baseball cards into Excel or like Excel for literally anything. In Japan, apparently, it was really big and I think still is in certain quarters to use Excel to lay out business correspondence because ultimately you get this like super fine grained table and you can get anything to align with anything, however you want. But if I'm in charge of Excel, do I say, let's go after these baseball card collectors and shoe collectors and um, you know all the other myriad uses of Excel or do we stay focused on the, the thing that it's supposed to do well? Yeah. I mean, at some point, I feel like all software turns into Excel or like <laughs> it creeps its way towards Excel. When you say you want to go horizontal again, are you think just to come back to this notion, like, do you want to build another office suite? Is that the goal for Slack or is it to make this tool? No, because I don't think the office suite will be as important in the future. And I don't, yeah, I don't mean that as a criticism of any company or any tool or anything like that. I just mean, think about the relative importance of files in your digital life in the workplace to like records and databases or objects in the cloud. In you know, 20 years ago, everyone had a shared M drive or Z drive or, or whatever at their office and everyone read Windows Domain Controller and um, we were passing files back and forth all the time. And pretty much the only artifact of collaboration outside of a handful of databases were, um, were files. And now for most people, most of the time, um, files aren't very important. So if you're in customer support, it's the ticketing system. Um, if you're in IT inside the company, you have IT asset tracking software and another ticketing system. Um, I could go down this list forever, but uh, but files become a, a forever decreasing kind of category in relative importance. And those office tools are geared towards the creation of those files. Now, they've all moved to the cloud. And I think that actually makes a tremendous difference. But the next difference is someone will eventually crack the nut, like, Coda, Quip, Dropbox Paper, whatever, whatever it is that's holding back this kind of glorious future where I don't have to decide in advance whether this is a spreadsheet or a presentation or a Word document. I have all of those tools available to me. And you know, most things that we end up creating at Slack anyway, and probably for you as well, other than like news articles, which are probably just want to be word processed. Um, <laughs> They want to be like a complex object that contains a bunch of other things inside them that has the presentation, but also you can dig into the original stats. It's not like the the chart isn't always going to be a, a pasted screenshot of the thing that you made in Excel emailed to you. Um, instead, it becomes really kind of all of a piece. So a little bit, of, I don't mean to have a specific prediction or special knowledge, but it is a little bit of skate to where the puck is going, not where it is now. I think by the time we were able to build a, a useful office suite, it would be 2025 and the world would have changed already. All right. So I want to end this. I always ask people how they spend their time, but I would be doing my team a great disservice if I didn't do this lightning round first, which is just feature requests for Slack. All right. Why can't I automatically turn off pings on weekends? Uh, there's no good reason. And that is in somebody's list. Okay, I'm, I'm sure everything is in yeah. somebody's list. I, yeah. It's the lightning round. We have to get into it. All right. uh, more granular options about what specific alerts to send to mobile. Uh, not being worked on presently, an area that we're definitely going to work on. Why is this thing still an Electron app on desktop? My battery is dying. Uh, you can almost guess. If you're a virtual, maybe you couldn't. Virtual listeners can 100% guess who that came from. That shouldn't be happening as much anymore. Like after the the big the Sonic release, um, so I doubt it'll be native in the next two years. But never say never. Actually, this is like a big thing that we talk about on our show all the time. Is is Electron the prevalence of Electron? Are you committed to it? Do you see that as the? If you ask the operating system vendors, it's the bane of their existence, right? right. Is that something that you're you're into? It is it just the bet you made and you're stuck with it? Um, 
it's just very useful to take a fully developed web app and then make a bunch of changes. So I mean, it's not just the same app that you get in a browser. Um, there's actually a bunch of features that Electron allows us to get at in the in the uh, file system and in the operating system more broadly. But it is a complex app. We have two native ones, iOS and Android, um, and it is much slower to develop in those environments than it is um, as a desktop app. The places where it really shows up as a pain point for me, and this is not lightning round anymore, is offline mode. I mean, that's the place, that's the thing that I personally want the most because I spent so much time in lousy Wi-Fi environments. Although who knows, maybe I never will again. Maybe I'll never leave my house or <laughs> <laughs> I finally have a good network set up. But that used to be a big problem for me. So I travel all the time and have trouble connecting. Yeah. I mean, I, the Electron thing, when I review a MacBook, you know, I get a call that's like, make sure you don't use Chrome. Like, <laughs> our battery life claim isn't going to survive if you use Chrome. And it's like, you see them rushing towards it. Okay. One more yeah. lightning round question. It's a, it's not really a feature request, but why is Slack still the same experience if your company is five people or 5,000? Um, it's a good question. It's not entirely, because um, if there's 5,000, you're probably going to be using uh, the enterprise grid product, which allows you to have multiple workspaces. But yeah, it's, it's really... Um, it's challenging to find ways of organizing information that work for both. So there's some automatic customization that we do now um, and some more that we're planning. But I think a lot of it is going to be either administrator level or user level customization to suit the specific needs of that person. Because like, there's only four people in your Slack instance. You have a five-person startup. You don't really need a whole bunch of like predictive analytics about which bill or which Mary you're trying to autocomplete when you use the at name autocomplete because there's only four people. You know, we don't need to be great at predicting which one you want to talk to now or, or anything like that. Whereas at large companies, I think it becomes really important. All right. So I end every CEO interview the same way. It's all changed now, but I always ask people how they spend their time. When do you work? Because I find it very challenging for me to sit down and do work as opposed to go to meetings. Mm -hmm. You're a very interesting person to ask that question to, given the nature of your business. But then also now you're managing the whole company remotely. So when do you work? It's very different now, because now I'm just by 6 o'clock. I don't think I have the capacity to do anything else useful or interesting. Maybe a little bit, you know, 8.30 or 9 p.m. But generally, I haven't been during this time. And I think that's because so much more is getting done. But then it depends on what you mean by work. So a lot of work is what I'm doing right now, being in meetings, talking to investors, talking to customers. If it's like really deep thought about something, that's almost always the weekend while exercising or going for a walk or having a shower, like all the classic, like I'm not sitting at a desk kind of tropes. Um, that's where the the really more insightful stuff happens. I think of work, and just to clarify, I think of work in this context is not communicating. Like, oh, I I'm going to write the email. I'm going to read the article. I'm going to think about this. Yeah. I'm going to generate some work product. Yeah. I mean, I'm the CEO, so it's the job is pretty much 100% communication. I mean, yeah. for any manager, that's most of it. It depends how expansive a view of communication you have, though. If it's you know preparing or sitting through someone else's PowerPoint, if it's reading and writing emails, if it's phone calls and one-on-one -on -one meetings and quarterly business reviews and road mapping sessions and all that. Yeah, that's pretty much the whole job. Many of your answers have been very different than other people's. And this one to me is striking in, in how different it is. Yeah. Because so many of the other folks I talk to, myself included, great, I'm going to review your thing. I need to block out hours to just think about stuff yeah. before I can go communicate effectively. And it sounds like you just communicate all the time. I, I have to... 
block out hours to, in the least effective way possible, kind of ADHD my way through 75 Chrome tabs <laughs> and start composing an email, but figure like, okay, I've already composed this, so it's going to show up in draft, so I don't have to worry about finishing right now. I can go back to the other thing that I just remembered I was supposed to do. I can't really think until the volume on that stuff goes down enough. Like, I feel like most of the time, 80 or 90% of my cognitive capacity is used up with like little loops that are spinning. And it might be every five minutes, every 10 minutes, every couple of hours, every couple of days that are just, oh shit, remember to get back to so-and-so. Oh, remember, you know, and I have to slay a bunch of those to have enough actual mental capacity to, to think of something new and original. Sorry, I will end on this same zone. What is your relationship to Slack, the software, like as a workplace productivity tool? How do you manage it? I manage it quite effectively because. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great answer. I know how everything works, so I can work around anything. So, like, um, when something doesn't work as expected, I know the way around it, and I've just built little techniques. And, you know, definitely can be. I can find it overwhelming, not because there's too many notifications coming in, but just because I have too much to catch up on. Um, there's too many things that like people ask me questions directly, which I don't think is the experience of most employees at Slack. But otherwise, we have very good discipline about where conversations happen and when to send messages and how much thought to put into something. If you're going to ask 100 people to read your paragraph of text, take a moment to to think through it. And I'll, if this is where we're going to end, I'll, I'll, I think it's a really interesting thought for for everyone. How much does your company invest in internal communication and in training people to be more effective communicators? Probably zero. And then people spend 100% of their time doing it, which is totally nuts. Um, we don't do as much of it as I think we should, but we do a Slack 101 and Slack 102 course for new employees coming in. Um, and we also are a little bit more intentional about the culture of, of communication. Um, but I think at almost every company, people don't do any training at all and then have their people spend all their time doing this thing for which they're not necessarily well-equipped. So I'll leave it there. I like it. I like yeah. the idea that you have a perfect relationship with Slack because you know how it works. And also because you could change it if you wanted to. That must feel great. Oh, you have no idea. Man. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Stuart, that was an incredible conversation. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for going over. You, you went over. That was uh, really great. We got to have you back soon. No problem. My pleasure. All right. My thanks to Stuart Butterfield, the CEO of Slack. Just an amazingly insightful conversation. Really enjoyed it. We're going to have to have him back soon. and Maybe just ask for more features. That, that was great. I really enjoyed that. We'll be back on Friday with a chat show. And then next Tuesday, another interview show. Friday, a chat show. I got to say, the interview shows for the next few weeks are going to be uh, great. We just have an absolutely killer lineup of guests. I'm so excited about it. Uh, and I love your feedback. You can tweet at me. I'm at Reckless. It's really helped us put together that guest list figure out where we should go. So again, tweet at me, I'm Matt Reckless. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks to Canva for their support. Canva wants to make your presentations come as easy as those thoughts that pass through your head. And thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and you're done. It's a serious time saver. Whatever you do for work, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You can generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work.